Hello, friends, and welcome to Ill-Natured. This is Michelle. And I'm Melissa. Very happy to be in your ears today. Yes, yes we are. Alyssa has a case for us today. Tell me his name again. Rodney Alcala. Alcala. I do not know this fool. Well, I am afraid that this might be another two-parter for y'all because I really tried to keep this all in one episode, but I... Literally could not. There was so much going on. This guy is nuts, and I just don't know how he got away with murder for so long. Mm. So, yes, we are talking about the very cocky Rodney Alcala. Boo. He lured his victims in with his good looks and high IQ, and a lot of people compared him to Ted Bundy. Ugh. And I know you just gave me like that look, so mm. I want to show you a picture of Rodney oh, Alcala before we even start. I was just having a conversation with my husband about how most the prolific, most prolific murderers, serial killers, whatever, are all really smart. Oh, for sure. Now, I don't think he's some, like, drop-dead gorgeous man, but, like, for the times, I guess he would be considered good-looking. Um, you just tell me. I mean, he's got some wavy locks now. He's got some feminine features, but oh, yeah, sure, I can sure. see he's got, you know, those defined lips, you know. Like, he, oh my gosh, is that, that was him? Hair? Yeah, that was him like he was, like, 62. <laughs> All of his hair's great, yeah. This is him on the dating game. We're going to talk oh, about that in a moment. Oh, goodness, yeah. He was, he was definitely, that, that glamour shot, the first yeah. one, was a bit much, but. So, he was a handsome, he was handsome, okay. Mm-hmm. So, like I just said, Alcala was a contestant on the dating game before he was caught for his crimes. And he actually won, like, his... Oh. Yeah, the well, date. Yeah, he won the date. Yep. Um, the dating game had a few contestants that would actually go on to become famous, such as Farrah Fawcett, Burt Reynolds, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. What? Yeah. I did not know that. Bart um, Reynolds was just the beast. Yeah. <laughs> so they would soon add Rodney Alcala to the list, except for this would be for something much, much darker mm. um, than just like acting. Mm-hmm. So Rodney James Alcala was born on March 23rd, 1943, in San Antonio, Texas, to a Mexican American couple. His father's name was Raul, Raul maybe? And his mother's name was Anna Maria. I love that name. I've always loved that name. Very pretty. Beautiful. Throughout primary school, he had excellent grades and was described as very intelligent and thoughtful. At the age of eight, his father relocated the family to Mexico to care for his grandmother, only to abandon them three years later. Mm. So that's when Anna Maria moved Rodney and his siblings back to the States to live in Los Angeles. In high school, he was very friendly and outgoing. He played sports and had tons of friends. Um, At the age of 17, he joined the Army, but was eventually discharged in 1964 after he he suffered a mental breakdown. He had actually left the premises without permission and hiked to his mom's across the country. 
Yeah, like Pretty something. Hardcore. Like there's not really any details. It's just like something in his like brain flipped, and he decided to hike across the country hmm. um, and mm-hmm. never go back. Okay, weird. Very weird. What age was this? Do we know? I think he was um like seventeen or eighteen. It wasn't That's long usually, after. He... Well, not usually, but. If mental illness is going to set in, it's young adulthood. That's right, precisely. Um, His mother said that when he showed up at her door, he was manic and kept saying how he had made a mistake and didn't want to be in the army anymore. When they found him, he was actually diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, and it was considered chronic severe. A few characteristics of this disorder is disregard for right and wrong, Lack of empathy e- for others and an inability to feel guilt or remorse for his actions. Yikes. That got worse and a little bit worser. And a little bit worser. Yeah, kind of like. Yikes. So it kind of is screaming um, sociopath. Sociopath. Yeah, for sure. I can hear it. <laughs> for real. Um, his superiors had noticed that within the last couple of weeks, Akala had stopped being able to perform his duties, and it seemed to go into a completely different mental state. After being discharged, he went and enrolled in the California State University, then transferred to UCLA and graduated with a fine arts degree in 1968. So he didn't get dishonorably discharged? Um, they just let him dip out? Yeah, I don't think it necessarily, like, specifies. It just says he was discharged. Okay. Um, Rodney also had another big event in his life this year. Um, 1968 would be his first known crime that he committed. Oh, I thought you were going to say, like, a girlfriend or... <laughs> no, nope. nothing good. First crime. Nothing good. Um, September 25th, 1968... Rodney Alcala lured an eight-year-old girl named Tally Shapiro into his apartment. Excuse me, eight? Eight years old. Now, I found a People's article where Tally actually did an interview about this, so I wanted to read it and talk about it first, since this is his first known serious crime. Um, Tally Shapiro was a second grader and was walking to school on Hollywood Sunset Boulevard when she was spotted by Rodney Alcala. He says later that he was watching her as she sang to himself while she walked. He pulled beside her as she was walking and offered her a ride to school. Tally said, quote, I told him I did not talk to strangers. That is when he said he knew my parents. I really didn't want to get into the car, but I was raised to respect my elders. I didn't know to fear people, end quote. He told her that he had a picture that he wanted to show her and that her parents had already seen it. So this is when she, when he opened the door to the passenger side of his vehicle. He said he could show her the picture on the way to school until he gets in his car. Thankfully, there was a good Samaritan that was stuck in traffic and was watching while all this happened. He noticed that the little girl had shook her head no and continued to walk, but the car kept creeping beside her. He also noticed that the car didn't have any license plates, and that made him feel very strange um, and followed this guy to his apartment. Um, Now we're going to switch back perspectives, and we're inside the car. Alcala is chatting with her the entire way to his apartment, um, and Tally noticed that they weren't headed to the school, and so she started to feel, you know, you know, kind of weary, like, kind of, what's up going on, you know? Yeah. And he told her that the picture was actually at her house. 
Um, or at his house, excuse me. So when they get there, he parks and Alcala walks her inside the home or the apartment. Um, and this is when the man who had followed them um, actually left and went to call police. When she was inside the home, he was like, that's it. You know, we're we're in this, uh, what did I say, 1968? We yeah, don't have cell phones, so he's got to go. Crazy? Yeah. I always have to specify because when I'm sitting here thinking about it, I'm like, dude, pull up. Why did you leave? Hello. Yeah, right. but he had to go to like a payphone or Just something. Just run in there while you're on the phone with the police. Yeah. Your phone in your hand. I wouldn't have made it. Um, I know. It's Mm-mm. way too different. Yep. Um, Tally said that his apartment was filled with tons of photographs, so that made her feel a little bit more comfortable since he was a real photographer. She it kind of put That's her right. mind at ease. That's right. Um, he gives her this picture and then... As soon as she, like, starts to focus on the picture, he hits her on top of the head, and she gets knocked out. (sighs) By the time the police had actually gotten there, Rodney had already beaten and began to rape (gasps) Tally. She was was unconscious. Yeah, and she was unconscious. When they went to knock on the door, Rodney, like, cracked the door open and peeked out Mm -mm. and said he was just getting out the shower. That's true. But his hair was dry, so that kind of raised the officer's suspicion, so they kicked down the door and watched as Alcala fled out the back. They noticed that there was pictures strewn all over the apartment and they were mostly of young girls. Then they followed a trail of blood and found eight-year-old Telly Shapiro laying on the floor bleeding to death because she had been beaten with a steel bar. Upon first glance, she did appear dead, but then when she started to gag, there was an ambulance called. Even though he had left the apartment and they never found him in the town, he did leave some things behind that gave his identity away. Mm -hmm. The police knew what his name was. They knew it was Rodney Alcala. Yeah. After fleeing his apartment, though, he moved to New York and enrolled in New York University under the name of John Berger. So, it, what, uh, 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 put it in reverse. So, he just moved. Yeah, so after he left the apartment, like, he literally fled to New York. They, like, they searched for him, but couldn't find uh, him. Oh, I see. And it's 1968. They had Again, no idea that, nuts. you know, he yeah. moved right. all the way across the country. Tally was actually taken to the hospital and was fighting for her life due to the blood loss she had, you know, endured during that beating. That first day after her attack, they weren't even sure that Tally was going to survive through the night. And if she did live, they didn't know she would even be the same. They couldn't tell the extent of her brain damage, but slowly Tally began to recover and became more responsive. She's able to smile, and then she began to whisper a few words. She's able to walk a walk again and asked if she was in trouble for missing school. Thankfully, Tally couldn't remember much about the attack. She was able to return back to school halfway throughout the year. But knowing that her attacker was still on the loose, it was just too much for the family. And her school was just too close to where she was attacked, yeah. so they decided to move. Her father quit his job in the music industry and they went to Mexico. So, as Rodney Alcala is actually getting settled in New York as John Berger, he continues on with his creepiness, of course. Of course. Um, It just starts as him following girls into the subway and, like, watching them. Sometimes they saw him and sometimes they didn't. Um, He just, like, would creep on them and leave, though. 
1969, a year after the whole Tally Shapiro thing, he's still living in New York. He actually gets a job at an arts camp for girls. Oh, um, stop and it. this is one of the first of many jobs that he gets that the job does not run a background check on him. Yeah, and, you know, thinking that he was working with children, maybe they should, oh my but. Gosh. Ugh. He didn't. Um, and so nothing really significant happens in between these next few years. Yeah. But in June of 1971, a young woman named Cornelia Michael Criley, who was 23 years old, was found raped and strangled in her apartment. In New York still. Yes. At the in- at the apartment, they noticed that there were no signs of a forced entry so that she mm. most likely knew her killer. Police began to sus- suspect the boyfriend, but he was soon cleared, and her murder went unsolved. The summer of 1971, Alcala returned back to the camp. He would take pictures of the teenage girls and liked the attention that he got from them. He made it so easy to make them all feel special, and he offered to be a friend or a listener, you know. I just thought you were about to say a lover. <laughs> no, he didn't Thankfully. Come- yeah, but this guy's still creep, creeping around. Creeping around. Uh, creeping and creeping, baby. Yeah. So, he's at this summer camp when the FBI comes out with their top 10 most wanted fugitives. And Rodney Alcala was on the list for his crime uh, against the 8-year-old in California. Busted. Pack your bag. <laughs> Seriously. So, a couple girls from the camp that Alcala was working at recognized John Berger on the FBI poster. At first, they kind of didn't believe it, um, but then turned around and went and told the dean of the camp. Mm-hmm. And like the teen girls, the dean didn't believe it himself mm-hmm. until he walked down and saw the poster. Rodney Alcala was a fan favorite counselor and one of the best, but the dean did call police and Alcala would be arrested and extradited back to California. Nice. Sadly, though, by the time Alcala was caught, the Shapiros had moved to Mexico and they didn't want Tally to testify at trial. Mm. So the prosecutors could not try him for rape and attempted murder without Tally's testimony. So instead they tried him for child molestation. He was convicted on May 19, 1972, and was sentenced to indeterminate sentencing, which means that he would have been released when he was deemed rehabilitated. Mm-mm. Never. Okay. Yeah, exactly. But apparently, this was very popular in the 70s when sentencing sex offenders. Mm-hmm. I guess they gave them multiple chances. What, like, I'm thinking about, like, challenges to, like, see, like, questions, you know. No, basically, you oh, know. multiple chances to see if they they've changed. I was yeah. talking about like a psychiatrist in prison, like gives them all these challenges. Like maybe they send in a kid to see if no, they creep but on them. That's the thing is like, of course, he seems rehabilitated in prison. There's not right eight year old girls and, walking around. Yeah, and look at this guy. It makes a difference. Well, anyways, it's sick, but it does. Alcala was able to fool the parole board, and he was released in 1974 after serving only a little over two years of his one-to-life sentence. Golly. Only being free for two months, Alcala kidnapped a 13-year-old girl whose name was Julie Johnson. Mm. 
Alcala did the same little show by offering a ride to school and then opening the door for her. She continued walking, knowing not to talk to strangers, but then he called her by her name. And it just so happened that her name was on her books. So that's why I quit putting names on book packs because somebody play like they know you. Yeah. My kids don't trust anybody. You hear me? No one. Period. I don't care if you know their name. You might get kicked in the shin. Yeah, my oldest yells, look at you. Okay. My oldest will yell, stranger danger. That's what I, I can see him. him doing that. Yeah, for sure. And then screaming bloody murder. Don't let your kids talk to nobody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, He kept on with the whole photographer thing, and she became impatient waiting for the school bus, so she accepted a ride from him. Alcala thought that she was about 9 or 10, but was surprised to find out that she was 13. Julie asked him about the posters he offered to show her, and he said that they were in the trunk. She pointed out that her school was just ahead, but he continued towards the highway anyways. She asked Lally to pull over, and he ignored her, and he finally said that he needed to stop by his apartment for the posters. She began to feel creeped out. So, when the car started slowly, um, you know... Slowing down. Yeah, in traffic, mm-hmm. she grabbed the door, but then he grabbed her arm. And at first, his face looked really evil, but quickly changed back to a friendly face. And he said he was just wanting to show her this beautiful spot overlooking the ocean. They got to a national park and walked over to the edge of a cliff, and that is when Alcala forced Julie J to sit down on a rock beside him. He asked if she got high, and when she said yes... Um, she just wanted to appear cool to him. Like, she really didn't, but, like... Right. This is his older guy. Yeah, so... Alcala lit a joint, took a puff, and handed it to her. And so, Julie J, you know, took the joint, inhaled, but, of course, coughed a ton because she'd never smoked before. Right. And he said some smart remark about how he thought she smoked. And then he roughly pulled her in for a kiss, and when she pushed away, he joked about her not liking boys. Uh-uh. Yeah, so, like, he's just teasing her, and it, he's taking advantage of this 13-year-old girl who's, like, yeah, naive, and he's, like, teasing and, like, flirting with her to so he yeah. can do what he wants to with her and, like, feel like... You know, you can be like, he has oh, permission well, you almost. see, yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. I remember being 13. I can, I feel you, sis, whoever this was. What was her name? Julie. Julie. Mm-hmm. Um, right after this incident, though, she looked around and realized that they were all alone in a desolate area. And for the first time she had been with Rodney Alcala, she thought that she was going to die. So she started getting scared. Yeah. Um, Thankfully, there was a park ranger named Jim Montgomery who was on duty, and he was in the area when he looked up from his surroundings um, and noticed a young girl and a man in his 20s sitting on a rock. He actually went over there because he smelled weed smoke. Uh-huh. So he didn't, like, see the scene, like, strange. He just started right. smelling, like, the smoke from um, marijuana. Yep. And he came up behind them. This is when he asked what they were doing, and Alcala tried to play it off. But Julie J immediately jumped up and said she had been kidnapped. Alcala told Ranger Montgomery that she was just high, and he tried to brush it off. Uh-uh. He just dis- yeah, what? She's just messed up, bro. Uh uh-uh. uh. If he thought that girl was nine or ten, okay, finish. I'm I'm speaking too soon. 
I think. <laughs> Maybe. So, Montgomery takes them into the police station to run, um, you know, try to get their story straight. Mm-hmm. Because she's saying... He, she's been abducted, and he's saying, uh, she's just kind of being crazy, you know, so, like, you would want right. to women, get down you know, to a... Crazy women. Yeah, you mm-hmm. figured you need to get down to one story. That's right. So, while they were sitting there waiting, they ran a background check on Alcala, and this is when they learned of his previous sex crime. Nice. He was arrested on the spot and charged with awesome. kidnapping, selling drugs, and parole violation. Alcala was found guilty of violating parole by providing drugs to a minor. I do think his kidnapping and sex crime charge was dropped, Mm -hmm. but he was sent back to prison for another indeterminate sentencing, and Rodney Alcala was released in a little over two years. All better. Yeah, this is the second time he's abducted. And being caught. Yeah. Who knows what he did that people don't know anything about? Oh, that's just going to get worse. Mm -hmm. Right now... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not gonna say any words. Mm-mm. In 1977, after his release, Alcala's dumb ass parole officer allowed him to go to New York City to visit some relatives. <sighs> Come on. In a very, very odd coincidence, this was the exact same time that the son of Sam was stalking New York. Mm-hmm. So just keep that in the little back of your head. All the residents of New York were scared at the moment, and women were warned to not go out at night, and many were, like, cutting their long hair to avoid being chosen as victims. Yeah, couples stopped going to, like, lover's lanes, secluded areas, and dark streets. Um, so that's just a little, you know... Backstory uh-huh. what's going on in New York at this time. Mm-hmm. Rodney Alcala arrives in New York on July 13th, 1977. And within a day or two of being there, he bumps into a college student named Ellen Jane Hover. She was 23 years old. He told her that she, you know, he was a photographer, blah, 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 and offered to get some photos of her because he thought she would be a great muse for him. She said that she would think about it, and that is when he offered to take her on a lunch date. She was hesitant, but eventually agreed. So a few days later, Alcala showed up to Ellen's apartment for their lunch, and she invited him inside. Later on, Ellen went missing, and her disappearance went unsolved. Many believed that she was another victim of the son of Sam because she did fit his victim profile. Until David Berkowitz was apprehended and identified as son of Sam. Um, He, you know, didn't claim her as a victim. Yeah. And he told it all, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, The... You know, when they did go and do their initial investigation, police found a calendar left behind that said John Berger photographer on it the day that she went missing. Mm -hmm. So, later in that same year, the Hillside Strangler started stalking around L.A. And I keep mentioning these other serial killers because these were all active during the time of Rodney Alcala and some of his victims were attributed to them until he was caught uh-huh. or they were, you know, pieced together by his That's story, crazy. like his aliases. There were so many oh, yeah. serial killers running around in the late, this is 78, 77? 77, 77, yeah, later 70s. Crazy. And the thing is, is Alcala, like, do you, there's no telling how many victims he has because he has victims in California, he has victims in New York. Right. And he's going through all these other states. Yeah. Also in the fall, Rodney Alcala moved back to L.A. and he started settling down again. 
He applied at the Los Angeles Times as a typesetter. His application never mentioned his previous criminal activities, of course, and they never <laughs> ran a background check or called his references. He did get the job, and he started working at the fourth largest newspaper in the whole United States. Wow. A, a pedophile. <laughs> yeah. Wow. A murderer. Yeah, and no one knows. Nuts. No one knows anything. Jill Barcom would be Rodney Alcala's next victim, even though they wouldn't connect her with him until very, very mm. long after. She was an 18-year-old girl who had been visiting L.A. from New York. She had been there about three weeks when her body was found near the Hollywood sign. She was found in a knee-to-chest position, and her lower half was naked. She had been sexually assaulted and had been strangled with a pair of blue slacks, and she was beaten. She's also found with bite marks on her breast. Her murder would be one that was tied to the Hillside Stranglers until they were caught. Mm -hmm. Also, in December of 1977, Alcala was hauled into the station and questioned for Ellen Hoover's disappearance. Police had finally connected him with the alias um, John Berger. And he told him that he told the police that he did know her and they did spend some time together. Um, and he actually admitted to taking pictures of her in Westchester, but said that they had went back to the city afterwards and he had left New York City and never saw her again. Mm-hmm. Police asked him to take a lie detector test, but he declined, but they and they let him go anyways. Yeah, sure. Go. Get out yeah, of here. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. And without a body, no matter how much they were suspicious of Alcala, they couldn't do anything. So, like I said, they let him go. Mm-hmm. Um, she was, you know, her body was still not recovered. This is Ellen. No, no yes, yes, yes. Ellen Ho- Hover in New York. Her body was still missing. Mm-hmm. The same month of December 1977, another woman had went missing. Her name was Georgia Wickstead, and she was a 27-year-old registered nurse. A co-worker and a friend of hers reported her missing. Police went to her apartment and upon arrival found a window screen missing and a box to stand on underneath the window. Mm. They knocked, but there was no answer, and the apartment was unlocked, so they went in. That is when they found Georgia's lifeless body in the apartment. She was found naked, sexually assaulted, tortured, bludgeoned, and strangled. Most of the trauma she endured, she was still alive for. Oh, I always hate to hear that. So, you know, the there's victims that are constantly coming. Mm-hmm. And Rodney Alcala has been interviewed for one so far. God. Besides, you know, the Tally one and the Julie J. Yep. Jill Barcom, Ellen Hover, Cornelia Criley, and um, what did I just say her name was? Ellen Georgia was Wickstead. Georgia, four of right. them. Yep. The four of them have all been went. Uh, you know, found dead or missing. Yep. In early 1978, police showed up to Rodney Alcala's residence to interview him on what he was doing on the days of the Hillside Strangler victims. So they started to suspect that Rodney Alcala could be uh-huh. the Hillside Strangler. Uh-huh. He said he understood why he was being questioned and gave plenty of alibis for his whereabouts. Some were said to be easily corroborated, so since they thought that all these victims were connected, if he wasn't around for some of them, he couldn't have been around for any of them. 
Before the police leave, they see some pot, though, and arrest Rodney Alcala for drug charges. Um, but he wasn't in there very long at all. In the spring of 1978, they find Ellen Hoover. Hoover, excuse me. Mm-hmm. She had been buried under heavy rock on a hillside near the Hudson River in Westchester. Now, remember, they're still considering Rodney Alcala as a suspect in her disappearance and remembered when he said that he and Ellen had been in Westchester. So, this was like Mm kind of, you know, connecting the dots. The place she was found was also a favorite spot of his. So, the detective Mm. went out to the spot, um, you know, just kind of checking in the area. And that's when he found Ellen. The detective had actually been going out to this area for a few weeks before he found some clothes peeking out from under a rock. And then he went back the next day, and that's when he found um, the bones of Ellen. When the story aired on the news about Ellen being found and where she was found at, a young woman called police and told them she had been out to the same exact spot a year earlier with a photographer named Rodney Alcala. Huh. Good for you, Around this exact same time, all the way back in L.A., there was another missing woman named Charlotte Lamb. Her sister had reported her missing after trying to call her for a few days to wish her happy birthday. Police found that Charlotte had been seen on a Friday night at a nightclub in Santa Monica, and her car had been left there. They went to Charlotte's apartment next, and when there was no answer, the building manager let them inside. It appeared that Charlotte had not been home since she left on Friday. This was now a Wednesday. They talked to police or they talked to friends and family and no one had seen or talked to her since that Friday. So they really had no idea where she was at and she was just kind of missing. But on June 24th, 1978, 911 got a call reporting a body in the laundry room of an apartment complex. Yeah, and now this was not in the same area, um, but it was the body of Charlotte Lamb. She had been found by the manager, um, and she was found lying face up with her hands behind her back. She had been sexually assaulted, and she was strangled. People that lived in the complex said they had never seen her before, and she was not a resident. So, she was just in there? Mm Mm-hmm. And this was not her apartment complex. This was like, you know. A random apartment complex. It seems that she had been picked up Friday night from the nightclub Mm -hmm. and taken to this, you know, taken somewhere. Right. Sexually assaulted, murdered, and then dumped in some random. What? Okay. Yeah, laundry area. At an apartment complex. That's horrible. People were looking for her, right? Yeah. Like her family and stuff. Mm -hmm. So sad. Yeah. Um, now, you know, halfway through Rodney Alcala's um, murder spree, a very, very infamous episode of The Dating Game aired. Mm-hmm. September 13th, 1978, Jim Lank was the host, and he just stepped out on stage and started the show like normal. Uh, he began introducing the first bachelorette of the night, Cheryl Bradshaw, and three, the three contestants. Um, now, I actually watched a preview of the episode on YouTube, 
So it's kind of, if you're interested in seeing it, I mean, it's not the whole show, but it's all of the parts that have Rodney Alcala in them. Um, but as the show starts, the three bachelors, like, get turned around in these chairs. Yep. Um, and, you know, like, the spotlight's not on them, so you can't make out details of their face or anything. Yep. It's just, like, three figures in the shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Jim starts introducing... Oh, wait. And before the show went live, Ronnie Alcala actually told the other contestants that he always got the girl. And so he was trying to intimidate them. And he was very cocky and confident that, yes, he was going to win this. Of course he would be. He's been getting away with murder, pedophilia for years at this point. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? What did I say? 1978? Yeah. Um, 10 years. Because his first attack was 1968. Telly Shapiro. God. Ten years. Mm. Um, Jim Lang introduced Bachelor Number One as a quote successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of thirteen, fully developed. He continues on to say, "quote You might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala." Or killing children. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. I don't know. I obviously never watched the show, and I don't know if you know I, much about it. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it's very, like, flirtatious. That's right. And, and yeah, silly. I've watched full episodes. Yeah. We used to have the Game Show Network, man. It was on every day. Right. I mean, not the dating game, but, you know, gaming. Yeah. I love it. Oh, yeah? Like, um, Whammy? Yes. And there's one really old one that I really loved. Now I can't think of what it was called. Um, I used to watch the Game Show Network all the time, too. Yeah. Where's that? What is this show called? I don't know. Anyway, love the Game Show Network. Shout out. I know, right? Love you guys. Um, But if you weren't aware, this is just a very flirtatious show. So I wanted to kind of give you that tidbit because when he, you know, he said that, you know, introducing the Bachelor number one as being fully developed at like age 13. Like it was supposed to be like a joke. Like Like the crowd loved it. Yeah. Yeah. So... Rodney is literally eating all of this attention and applause up. Um, he loves being this charmer. He loves people to have, um, you know, good reaction to his presence and being the center of attention. Like this is like something he craves and he enjoys. Yeah. Um. So one of the first things that um, Jim says is to each man to say hello to Cheryl to you know open the show up. And Rodney says, quote, we're going to have a great time together, Cheryl. And, like, it was really, like, I feel like in that tone, too. Like, we're going to have a great time today, Cheryl. Yeah. Creep. Yeah. Gross. You think they got vibes? Ooh, I bet you're going to tell me. Girl, I'm going to tell (laughs) you. So, um, in another round, Cheryl asked Rodney what his favorite time was and why. And you're (laughs) going to freaking die. I hate this so much. What? He said night because that is the only time there is, end quote. And then goes on to say, quote, nighttime is when it gets real good, end quote. What? Yeah. Way to take it to the next level, buddy. Yeah. Next, Cheryl asked Rodney to act like a dirty old man. And he says, quote, come over here, end quote. And then he, like, growls at her. Ew. He's like, come over here. <laughs> 
that was that was beautiful. That was a, that was a beautiful growl. I'm trying to give y'all creep show vibes. Yeah, I know. I, like, I kind of sound goofy, but like I'm trying to be. No, I'm creeped out. Imagining that coming from him because we know who he is. You know. Yeah. I, know. I gotta watch the episode. You you definitely have to. Mm-hmm. Um, when she asked what he would be if she was serving him for supper and what he would look like, he responded by saying he is quote a banana and I look really good end quote. And then when she asks him to be more descriptive, he says, peel me with a huge grin. Ew. Ew. Peel me. Gross. For real. Like, ew. Wow. Yeah. Wow. He sucks. Um, by the end of the show, Cheryl did pick Bachelor number one, Rodney Alcala. I thought you were about to say Cheryl did peel. <laughs> New, and I'll not. tell you why. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entire show, he flirted back with her with each question. She just continued to flirt with him further, and she did favor him the entire time. Rodney and Cheryl were actually supposed to be going on a date together, you know, as winning. That's right. Um, And they won a couple's tennis lesson, then a date at an adventure park. But Mm. when they got backstage, Cheryl started getting really weird vibes. Good good for you, Cheryl. Right after the show, they were sent backstage to talk a little bit more and get better acquainted and stuff. And Rodney seemed to continue on with his performance. And that was kind of like a red flag for Cheryl. Like, she was like, this is real life. Yeah, she's like, we're supposed to be getting, you know learning who each other are and you still have like this stage presence like we're still being you know we're being dramatic for the show but like this is we're supposed to be being real now you know yeah and alcala would actually get super close to her and whispered in her ear that this would be a date she would never forget stop it stop it she immediately told producers that he was creepy and she would (laughs) not be going on a date with him very uh you know do as you please, but it's not going to be me. Nope. Did she get like a? Do they get something if they don't go on the date? Like I don't know the monetary value of half of the date, maybe. No, I don't think I don't know. Hmm. I don't. Really I need know. to know this because, because the reason I say this that I don't know is because when they told Alcala, he was like super pissed off and he couldn't understand why. Mm. Um. But they still told him that he was, you know, he's like, you can take the couple's lessons yourself and go to the amusement park and take whoever you want to. So, so they, they, they gave the prize to him. Mm-hmm. She dodged a serial killer. Well, they gave the prize to him. Yeah. I guess because he was dejected. Yeah. Rejected. He was dejected. the one. Yeah, that one technically, I guess. Um, and, like, this was super important because most serial killers cannot handle rejection. Um... Yeah. And Alcala was used to getting whatever he wanted. Yeah. Um, and when family members asked about his date, he answered vaguely saying L.A. was huge and he never took the show seriously. Mm-hmm. So he was just kind of brushing it off, you know. That's right. It wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. Nothing. By early 1979, the Hillside Stranglers were arrested and during their interrogation, they claimed some of their victims. Um... The ones that were left were victims police were unsure about in the beginning, but they were really, really confused about one case in particular, and that was the Jill Barcom case. Mm-hmm. You know, the 18-year-old that was visiting L.A. and found a Hollywood sign? Yep. 
they thought for sure that was another victim of the Hillside Stranglers. But Kenneth Bianchi mm-hmm. was very adamant that she was not their victim and he had never seen her before. Mm-hmm. Police were conflicted on whether or not to believe him because, I mean, first of all, he's a criminal and he's a murderer. Right. Like, so are you really going to tell the truth? Exactly. But, like, on the other hand, wow. he's already committed, you know, he's already... Yeah, said that he, you know, he admitted to these all other unsolved homicides. I feel like if they admit to multiples, why would they lie about one random? Yeah, yeah, like, why would you, like, say yes to some and no to others just for shits and gigs, I guess? I mean, I guess it's plausible these guys are sociopaths. So, they weren't, like, 100% sure, but they were also confused, like, why would he lie, you know? So, they never really got any, like, for sure 100% yes or no answer about Jill Barkham. In their minds. Right. February of 1979, Monique Hoyt, 15 years old, was hitchhiking. She had actually run away from home when she was picked up by Rodney O'Connor. While riding, he kept telling her that he was a photographer and kept complimenting her. So, I hope you're getting a pattern. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, he asked to take some photos of her and drove her to the, quote, perfect spot. They were two hours away from where he initially picked her up, and they walked into the forest into an open clearing. Now, before I get any further in this, I'm going to give you a trigger warning. Okay. If you don't already know this guy's a sicko, but like... If the eight-year-old girl wasn't indication enough, yeah, it's probably about to get ugly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so after a few normal shots, he asked to do some nude shots. And she reluctantly agreed. Now, remember, she's 15 years old, so she's a teen, but still, like, I can't remember exactly how old he is at the time, but he's, like, well into his 20s. Yeah. And you're taking pictures of a 15-year-old girl naked. Yeah, in the forest. Child pornography charges for yeah. Yes, So, for an hour, he snapped pictures of her naked. But when she got bored, she put her clothes back on, and then he suggested them doing some silly shots. He told her to pull her shirt up over her head, and although she found it to be weird, she did it anyways. That's when Alcala ran over there and hit her on top of the head and knocked her out. Mm. He brutally raped her while she was unconscious. And when she started to wake up, she had no idea how long she had been out. But her head was throbbing, and she could hear him breathing close by, so she pretended to be dead. She realized she was naked from the waist down, and when she went to open her eyes, his face was inches away from hers. Ugh. What a creep. Can you imagine, like, okay, oh. alright, let's, like, lay back right now. I want everybody to lay back, unless you're driving, please don't lay back and close your don't. eyes. Mm-hmm. But, like, let's all lay back and close our eyes right now. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know you're waking up from being knocked the hell out with some random dude. You're in the middle of the forest by yourself. You know you don't your head's freaking hurting. Yeah, you're naked. And you hear this creep of breathing in your ear, basically. I'm so creeped out. You open your eyes. eyes. I'm opening my eyes. Open your eyes and like you're basically having to cross your eyes because this guy's like anybody standing that close to me, like, can you imagine? Even ugh. Somebody gets too close to me at the grocery store, I'm giving him the stink eye. Like, get off me. For real. But, like, he's, like, nose to nose with this girl. Um, That's when he puts his hands around her throat and started to strangle her until she passed out again. 
the next time that Monique woke up, it was almost night. And when she opened her eyes this time, Alcala was laying down beside her. He had his head in his elbow and she realized that he was crying. Uh-uh. So she decided to pretend to be his friend and sympathize with him to stay alive. This was the smartest thing that she could have done. Snaps. Yeah. Like. You go, girl. You get it, Monique. Get it. Monique. Of course, Monique. You go, Monique. So, she asked what was wrong with him, and he tilted his head looking towards her. She moved her hands to touch him, and she said, quote, please don't tell anyone ha- what happened here, end quote, and then asked to go to his place to clean up. Like, sis was fucking thinking, man. Yep. She was thinking. Can you imagine after all that? To do, never yeah. think this out. She wanted to make him believe that she was not going to tell anybody. Like, she was okay with what happened. Just that it was, it, she was embarrassed of it. Um, not, like, he shouldn't be embarrassed. He shouldn't be scared. Like, I'm sorry that we did this. Yeah. You know, like, kind of taking right. the blame for it. Yeah. So, he never made eye contact with her. But she did get her her hands untied, and they went back to the car without speaking to each other. The entire ride, she tried to fight the urge to scream and run. Yeah. They had to stop to use the restroom, and she fled immediately Good. and got Phew. out of there. She ran into a hotel, and police arrived within minutes. But when Alcala, or when they got to the rest stop, that Alcala was gone. <gasps> Luckily, Monique was with him long enough. That she could identify him. And luckily, she survived. So, yeah, she survived this terrible thing. But she was there long enough to identify him. Like, she can pick him out of a lineup. And she did. When she was shown pictures, she didn't hesitate at all to point out Rodney Alcala. Mm -hmm. She bad. She bad. Mm -hmm. When police showed up to Alcala's to arrest him, he was just chilling in his living room. Mm-hmm. Um, and he made sure to state that he was done with probation and had been changed and he was reformed. Sure, sure, sure. He hadn't bothered anyone since his release. But when asked where he was on the day of Monique's kidnapping and rape, he couldn't come up with an alibi and was arrested and charged with rape. He confirms that he was with her and was taking pictures of her, even some risky ones, but assures them that he had her consent the entire time. Then, all of a sudden, he admitted that she stopped consenting, and that is when he panicked and choked her until she passed out. Then he admitted that he gagged her with her shirt, and then he said, quote, yes, I raped her, end quote. Just all of a sudden admitted to raping her. Nonchalantly, I'm sure, because he's cool. It's like something just like flipped in his brain. He was like, yeah, I did rape her. (sighs) Crazy. Boo. A judge set his bail at $10,000, and the prosecutors were so mad. Like, they didn't think, first of all, $10,000 and a rape. Yeah. How much do you have to pay? What percentage of bail do you have to? All of it, right? I don't know. What makes me think it's not all of it? Because people post bail so much and it's these... So I couldn't put up no $2,000 for somebody's bail? No. Uh-uh. That's what I'm saying. And that's like on the lower end of bail. I think it's only a percentage of it. Like, you pay a certain percentage up front, and then if you skip town, you have to pay the rest. 
I'm going to Google. Let's Google it. Uh, yeah. We're going to Google. Anyways, the bell Actually, was set. Actually, I don't Google. I use DuckDuckGo. I just. Oh, yeah. We're going to DuckDuckGo it. Yes. There's just no good way to say it, you know. Search engines will always be Google. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so a judge set his bill at $10,000 and his mom bailed him out a month later. So he kidnaps and rapes a 15-year-old girl and he can post bail. Yeah, sure, sure. In June, there was another dead body reported in an apartment complex. Police found 21-year-old Jill Parento dead in her apartment. Police noticed that there were latches that were messed with so someone could Mm. break into her apartment and a light bulb on the porch was unscrewed. The last thing Jill was supposed to be doing was going to a Dodgers game with her old friend. She had been strangled and police did collect DNA but had zero idea who to compare it to because there were no suspects in her disappearance and murder. Also in June, June 19th to be exact, Alcala took a few pictures of a couple of teenagers on a beach. He asked for their numbers or addresses and they denied and started to leave. Alcala was then offered them weed and the teens kept going, never turning back. Hmm. So this is June 19th, 1979. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is luckily the beginning to the end. Good. Y'all want me to tell y'all about bail real quick? Yes, tell us about the bail. Okay. How much bail do you have to pay is the question. I'm getting this from askinglot.com. How much bail do you have to pay? A bond is much like a check that you give to a friend, asking him or her not to cash it until you say it's okay to do so. Generally, the purchase price of the bond is about 10% of the value. Therefore, if your bail is set at 5000 you can expect to pay about 500 in order to purchase a bail bond. So she had to pay $1,000 to bail this rapist out of jail. Ugh. $1,000. Ew. Okay. On June 20th, 1979, Rodney Alcala went back to the beach. I think this was Huntington Beach. Mm-hmm. And started taking pictures of some girls. Um, he was determined to get a victim since he wasn't able to get one of the teens from the day before. Mm. So, if you haven't caught on to his pattern quite yet, mm-hmm. um, he likes to take pictures of them and then say, you know, uh... Let's go in this area and take pictures. Or, hey, I've got a picture to show you. Like, It's all about this photography. Like, yep. you know, this is a big, big I'm deal. I'm sure there are promises of modeling careers and such as oh, that. Oh, yeah. And, like, and some of them, like, I think in the teens that he, you know, from yesterday, yep. um, he said something to the effect of, like, he was in school or he was applying to some magazine, you know, something like mm-hmm. that. I'm thinking, you know. They're going to get some good exposure. Exactly. Yep. <clears throat> so... This is, you know, he's hanging out, taking pictures, when he spots 12-year-old Robin Samso and her friend Bridget. They were on Sunset Beach, so. They were in Huntington Beach, but on Sunset Beach. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. In Huntington Beach. Got yeah, because that's a town, right? A city, a town, yep, whatever. that's right. Um, he approached them and asked to take pictures of them as he was complimenting them. Mm-hmm. So, I think they started, you know, they were, you know, talking. I think he was take, maybe, maybe taking some shots, whatever. When a neighbor of Bridget's came over and kind of, like, shooed Alcala off. Like, she was <laughs> like, what again. are you doing? Yeah. You know, like, she didn't recognize him, so. Yeah, good for her. 
Golly, snap. Wait. Snap. Exactly, because, like, I've got to save their, save their lives. So, anyways, um, Alcala, like, stalked off, and he was, like, visibly mad. Like, she could tell. Like, she was like, that's a weird reaction yeah. to being told to get the hell away from some 12-year-olds, Young but girls. whatever. Oh, um, The neighbor led the girls back to Bridget's house, and by the time they got there, Robin realized that um, she was going to be late. Robin was actually headed to her first day of work that day. Um, she was going to be answering the phone at her ballet studio. Um, instead of receiving a paycheck, she was going to be getting free lessons. <laughs> because Robin's mom recently was unable to afford the classes. So her instructor, instructor set up this arrangement. Because Robin was very determined and she really enjoyed ballet. And, you know, she just didn't want to see this dream die for this little girl. Um... So, her friend decided that she was going to let her borrow her bike um, and told her friend to just return it the day, you know, uh, this must have been like a, um, a Sunday or something. She told her to just return it the next morning at school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, by, you know, she told her friend goodbye and she started towards the ballet studio. And I think this might have been around three, maybe. But not long after they had the encounter. No, this was like right after um they were walked home. Um by 5 p.m. her instructor began to worry though because Robin hadn't shown up. Uh, so she called Robin's mom, Marianne, and that's when Marianne started calling and asking anyone if they had seen her, but no one had. Mm. So Marianne of course called police. Somewhere in between her way to the ballet school, Alcala had st- saw Robin again and got her into his car. This was only like an hour. She went missing an hour after their first encounter. So he was lurking around. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Um, so there was actually a witness, Dana Croppa, that was I think a firefighter student or, you know, something along the lines mm-hmm. of that. Um, that saw Alcala leading Robin down towards a stream and around dusk. Um, this is the same day she went missing. Um, so, you know, she sees this blue station wagon parked on the side of the road. She sees this man with long dark hair leading this blonde, you know, little blonde girl down yeah. to, um, like, the stream. But she doesn't think anything about it. You know, they could be father and daughter. That's right. Um, but the morning after Robin's disappearance, there was an active missing persons investigation being Aww. conducted. Um, this was actually the first missing child in Huntington Beach. This is when police learned about the strange photographer that was taking pictures of Robin before she went missing. That afternoon, there was a sketch done of Alcala, thanks to Bridget and some of the other witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was released to the press. This sketch spread like wildflower. Like nice. It was all over That's the place. Awesome. It was a good sketch, I'm assuming. Yes. Good. By late June, there were hundreds of tips, but unfortunately, nothing came of it until they got a call from Donald Hayes. Now, you're thinking, hmm, who is this fella, Donald Haynes? Well, let me just tell you. This person calling said that he, you know, 
thought he might have interesting information that the police wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. Even though he was nowhere near Huntington Beach the day Robin went missing, and even though he didn't know Robin at all, um, he had some pertinent information. Back in 1968, Donald Haynes was on Sunset Boulevard when he witnessed the abduction of an eight-year-old girl, <gasps> Tally Shapiro. Stop it! Did you just get chills? Because yeah. I did. Stop it. Yeah. This guy is out there. He is here for a reason. Oh, yeah. Uh, He was able to tell police at the Huntington Beach Department, you know, how he followed this man. um, And he, you know, you know, the man eventually was put in prison for his crimes. But as soon as he heard about Robin's case, he immediately thought of Tally Shapiro. And then he immediately connected Mm -hmm. the, you know, he connected the cases. Um, Officers took notes and hung the phone up. Later that afternoon, they got a call from a parole officer who said that he thought he recognized the man in the sketch and recognized his M.O. Both callers gave the name Rodney Alcala. Uh And so this is when officers compare notes. Um, And after their shift, they finally have a solid suspect in mind in Robin's disappearance. Because she's, you know, they don't know what's happened to her. She's just gone. Gone. Yep. Um, when mm. Rodney Alcala's mugshot was faxed to the Huntington Beach Police Department, Detective Art Droz recognized him almost immediately. I gotta look up the sketch. Keep going. Okay. Uh, his wife, Marilyn, was actually the one who had drawn the sketch of Alcala. Um, and he was just super excited to tell his wife, like, what a good job that she did because the sketch looked so much like Rodney Alcala. That's awesome. Um, so, as he headed home, he turned on the TV as he waited for his wife. Um, and he was, like, reading the paper and wasn't really paying attention to what he took, you know, put on TV. It was just for background noise. Right. Um, until he heard the name Rodney Alcala on TV. Mm-hmm. He looks up and sees Alcala walking around. I think he was in a brown leisure suit. Stop And it. a white shirt. Um, walking... On stage of the dating game. Dang. It was a rerun of the Stop dating game. It. And he pulled the sketch out again and compared it to the TV. This was a perfect match for Rodney Alcala. Mm. The next day, the police got a tape, um, a copy of the dating game. This is when I think he, at first when he saw it, I don't think he realized it was a rerun. And then um, the next day is when he like confirmed it was. Right. Yeah, how freaking nuts. That's crazy. Yeah. Nuts. Alright, I got the sketch pulled up. I mean, that looks like him. It really does. The only thing I don't see are the eyes, but it, but it favors him a lot. So, but there might, I wonder if there's another one, though, because... Because, I mean, it favors him, yes, but the guy on the level looks like, looks like a Disney character, like in this one. The sketch but looks also, like a also, he had long, curly hair when all this happened, so his sketch see, would have long, okay, curly hair. This, I think this is it, maybe, but I don't see... I don't see the comparison one, you know what I mean? We'll have to save this and post it to the Instagram. Yes. Alright, now an old one now. I don't want to see him today. He looks like such a boob. I feel like he thinks he's really smart. Oh, well, yeah, he knows he's really smart. You're not a smart chief. Well, I'll continue on while you You continue, yes. 
the day after, so June 21st, she was driving on the same road, the Santa Anita Canyon Drive. She, this is the one that she saw the man and little girl walking into the woods. Um, the next day, June 21st, she saw the station wagon still parked in the same spot on the side of the road. Uh. This time, she saw the man standing beside the car. The little girl was nowhere to be found, and he appeared to be dirty. Uh-uh. Stop. So, days after seeing these two, you know, encounters, um, she hadn't been able to get them out of her mind. Like, she started to kind of, like, worry about it and think the worst. Yeah. Um, so, one night while she was driving by this part of the woods again, she decided to stop and get out. She, you know, like I said, was thinking back by the about the first time where, and, you know, wondering where the little girl was. And it was just, you know, real weird. Yeah. Um, but she pushed these thoughts out of her mind as she, she searched the area with a flashlight. She was in hopes that this would put her mind at ease. Um, you know, hoping that nothing was going to be out there. Like, she was freaking out for nothing. Right. Um, this is nothing to worry about. But good for her for stopping. Exactly. Uh-huh. Well, you're going to say that and then you're going to be like, ooh. Never mind. Yeah. No. So, as she's walking along the side of a dried stream bed, she saw a decomposing body. And trigger warning, I'm about to give you a description of the dead body. Um, part of the face was gone, and the corpse was unclothed and had been pretty cut up. The hands and the feet were missing, but Krapa could not say whether they had been cut off and she later would say that she couldn't remember whether legs, whether the legs were hacked up or not. <sighs> the head was actually next to the body, mm-hmm. um, but she said she couldn't tell if it was severed. Um, and nearby, she had seen a yellow and blue tennis shoe and what looked like a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. Yeah, she kind of like froze in fear. Yeah, and then Alyssa, what would you do? Oh my gosh! Well, not God. what she did. Uh, she oh. turned around, drove back to the station, and she never told anyone what she saw. Excuse me? This it's- was on June 25th. This was five days after she went missing, and she didn't say a word. What? She was scared? Don't know what she was. But Stupid. She yeah, she didn't say a word. Sorry, y'all, but if you find a dead body, please, let's report it ASAP. Yeah. Yikes. So, during this time, Rodney Alcala straightened his hair. So, he was starting to change his appearance. Like, yep. that picture that you had seen. Yep. That's when he was straightening. Yeah. Uh-huh. Up until now, like I said, it was, like, extremely wavy and curly. And yep. it kind of looked like a lion's mane. Like a, yeah. hmm For sure. Um, also, at this time, he did have a girlfriend. Um, and he actually went to this girlfriend's house to show her the new locks. Um... Even though they had only been dating a couple months, Elizabeth, his girlfriend, thought that she was in love. God bless her for that. Yeah. Then, a few days after that, he had actually cut it into a professional-looking cut, um, and he had replaced the carpet in his car. Mm-hmm. And his excuse was um, he did it because he had spilled gas, gas, and it smelled bad. So, even though Elizabeth didn't really remember the smell or anything like that, she just kind of went along with whatever. Because, why would she question him? Like, right. She loves this man. He's a good guy. Yeah. She has no idea of his past Ooh. at all. No idea. Oh, she should. Not, a, not a clue. Yikes. So, um, yeah. 
Mm-mm-mm. Elizabeth. Elizabeth, sweetie sister girl. Liz- friend. Don't do it. Mm-mm. I don't know. Ugh. Well, um, July 2nd, 12 days after Robin disappeared, William Popke, um, who was also on the spraying team for the Forest Service, stumbled across a set of bones. This is actually the second time that he had seen them, because earlier in the week, him and his co-worker, Dana Kroppa, saw them. But he thought they were animal bones, even though Kroppa seemed to have a really weird reaction to seeing them. So, two, two different different folks mm-hmm. are ignoring the dead body. So, well, the well first, when she saw it, she knew it was a body. When he saw it, they were just bones, So, that's maybe a little more... I don't and know. it was in the woods, so he's like, okay, there's dead bodies all the time out here, like... I always look at bones. Well, I do too, but like another time, another thing to be like concerned about, you know, he eventually did call police because he was worried. Right. Um, but the Sierra Madre police came out and identified them as partial remains um, and took them in as autopsy. Uh-huh. But they, you know, they weren't thinking foul play at this time because it was really weird, but like typical for this area to have bodies out in the San Gabriel Mountains. Like, this is a really heavy drug user overdose area. And so, they couldn't tell it was a little girl. Dang. Can you imagine having an area like that where it's like, oh, yeah, there's another one. Well, it's, yeah, like, it's kind of like, you know, the force in Japan that people go out to kill themselves. Like, I I need to know more about that. That's just strange. But anyways, Mm -hmm. um, so that's the thing. Like they, he sees, he sees this set of bones, and he, you know, either thinks they're animal bones, or then when he realizes there could be human remains, he calls the police, and the police yeah. weren't like thinking, right, an unsolved, yeah, because they didn't know, right, they didn't know, mm-hmm. and uh, they did bring it back in, you know, to the body to be autopsied. But it wasn't until the following Monday that the remains were looked at. This was over July 4th weekend. Uh-huh. Um, so at this time, this body's still not identified. No. And that Emmy couldn't identify the body or give a time of death or manner of death. The only thing that he could say was the body was of a young female under five feet tall. Luckily, they were aware somewhat of the Robin Samso disappearance, and yep. Detective Craig Roberson was notified. He got her dental records, and when the ME got them, he confirmed they were the remains of 12-year-old Robin Samso. Hmm. Later on in searches, when uh, where Robin's body was found, police found a 12-inch cane-cut knife more human remains, a clump of blonde hair, and the blue and yellow tennis shoe um, that Kroppa had seen. Now, keep in mind, police, you know, didn't know. They, no That's one knows what, that she's know seen that the body. Yeah, saw the body. Mm-mm. No, they have no idea. Um, and Roberson takes the shoe back to Marianne, Robin's mom, and she does verify that it was Robin's shoe, and this mm. was on July 10th. So, 20 days after she had went missing. Now, I think this is where I'm going to stop us for part one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want y'all to come back to listen to part two on how this sicko is caught. I'm ready. So. I'm ready for it. Like always, thank you for listening. We're just going to close you out real fast. Cause, yeah. Uh, 
real fast. We want y'all to be left on a cliffhanger. Like cliffhanger. How dare you do this to me, to our listeners? You. We're about to record the second part. In like okay. Five well, minutes, I don't have. But your listeners are. Pulse, but I'm very sorry <laughs> that y'all have to wait so long. So. Um, we love you guys. We thank you for listening. You know, as always, go follow us on the Facebook group. Did you blank Ill out? Nature Podcast. I did blank out. Go follow us on the Instagram. At Ill Nature Pod. Twitter. Ill Nature Pod. Mm-hmm. We have a TikTok now. Oh, that's right. Ill Nature Pod, right? Yes, and I have been going on TikTok every yes. day, um, and I will do it for a month until we get a thousand list a thousand listeners on the podcast. Yes. Um, TikTok is for real. I feel like it's such a great tool to like spread the word about stuff. Like people can blow up on their so TikTok quick. TikTok is so. my TikTok. I just said TikTok is my new favorite station. Oh, it's the best. It's so much fun. Like, I always thought, what are these people doing? Watching silly videos all the time? And now I'm hooked. Yeah. All day already. I've added Live it to my life TikTok. I've added it to my morning rotation. <laughs> you know, like. It's my random hours me. of the day rotation. I found a new guy I got to share with you. I wish I could remember his name. Um, He's funny. He's funny. He's funny. Oh, send us an email. Yeah, Can guys. An, an email? email? No. Pod at yahoo.com yeah and um subscribe like us rate us tell your friends you do it we need all we need it all we do suck us yes oh please and thank you and i do want to just give a quick little teeny tiny shout out uh-huh. before we close this episode down um i assure you saw but we did add two more oh, countries right. yeah. um spain and portugal so Ooh-hoo. we're glad to have you guys thank you guys thank you so much we love you all and we're gonna see you back next week same time tuesday yes don't Midnight. forget us did you hear my story? Are you hungry? Okay. We love you guys. That's right. Love you much. Uh, See you on the flip. Peace.